And for our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, The Gospel-Centered Life, we have workbooks for that, and those workbooks are available at the uh, Information Center, the Resource Center, uh, for you to follow along. And we will be looking at uh, lesson number three in the uh, books on page 24 in just a bit. We will have probably an abbreviated session, if we can finish at about 10 of today, the reason being one of the announcements that I have, and that is that we have uh, tours of our potential ministry center this afternoon. The first of those is going to be at 1230. So I'm going to beat a hasty retreat from here, shake a few hands, but not hang around here as long as I normally do to get over there. Those of you that want to be part of that first tour, it's at 1230 at 3700 Benson. So this is how you get there. You would take Van Horn east to 4th Street. You turn right on 4th Street, and then you go down about a quarter of a mile, and uh, the first right is Benson, and the school is on the left. So Van Horn, right on Fort, right on Benson, okay? Uh, 1230 is the first uh, tour. Uh, For those of you that want lunch first, the next tour is at uh, 2 o'clock. And then at 3.30, we have a family meeting at First Baptist of Gibraltar. So you're all invited to one of those two tours and to the family meeting this afternoon. And we'll discuss all aspects of the uh, ministry center just to bring you up to date and then uh, tell you what the next steps are for us on that uh, project. And then for things that uh, are coming up, take a look at uh, your program uh, this this week. Keep apprised of, of what's coming up. There are a number of things going on. This coming Tuesday, ladies, is the uh, monthly Moms and Tots uh, day out, 10 o'clock at the McDonald's on West Road. That's the one in Trenton that is east of Allen Road near the Boston Market because there are a couple of McDonald's, so we want you at the right one. It's got a playland, so play for the kids and fellowship for the moms. And then on uh, Thursday evening, ladies, that's your monthly ladies' night out, and they'll be at P.F. Chang's at 6.30 in, uh, in Dearborn. So all ladies are invited and encouraged to come to that. This coming Saturday is our next newcomer's brunch. That's brunch at our house for people who fit in the category of newcomer. And we have a very broad definition of newcomer. It means you've never been to a brunch. If you've never been to one of our brunches, consider yourself a newcomer, and we would love to have you. But we want to know that you're coming so we know how much brunch to prepare So let the uh, ladies at the uh, Resource Center know that you're planning to attend. They have a card to give you to show you how to get to our house. It's got our phone number on it to remind you of the time, which is 10 a.m. to noon this coming Saturday at our house. The Newcomer's Brunch is just brunch and a chance for us to fellowship and get to know each other a little bit uh, better. Uh, No program. I don't go through any material. Uh, So it's just uh, an informal time like that. But if you have any questions... Uh, that you would like to ask, I'll do my best to answer them in that uh, informal setting. So we'd love to have you on Saturday, but we need to know you're coming, so get the card at the, um, at the uh, Resource Center. And then on uh, March the 25th, looking a little bit longer range, but next month, March 25th, is our next baptism. So those of you that have never been baptized the way the Bible talks about it, that means that you're dunked in water, that you've been immersed to symbolize the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. If that's never happened with you, it needs to. And I would love to talk to you about what the qualifications are to be baptized and uh, what baptism indicates and then see if you're a candidate for that. So you need to see me 
see me today if you can. Uh, let me know. You can shoot me an email to let me know, and we'll set a time to get together to uh, talk about the qualifications and the significance of, of baptism. All right, we are looking at, and have for two sessions now, looked at the gospel-centered life. And in the first session, in lesson number one, you were introduced to a, a diagram, a schematic, that is called the gospel grid. And the gospel grid uh, is a grid that shows two arrows that emanate from the time of conversion. And so there's a point in time at which we come to Christ and we are converted. But then moving out from conversion, in our Christian walk, these two arrows go out and they, they get increasingly further apart. The one arrow is labeled an awareness, the top arrow, an awareness of God's holiness. And then the bottom arrow is an awareness of our own sinfulness. So we're converted, and then as we move forward in the Christian life, there should be this increasing awareness of the holiness of God, increasing awareness of our own sin. Now, it's important to note that God is not becoming more holy. Uh, hopefully, we're not becoming more sinful. But we are becoming more aware of how holy God is and how sinful we are. And that is why the gap between God's character and our character becomes further apart. Actually, as we go further along, that becomes further apart in the sense of our awareness of God's holiness and of our, our own sinfulness. So lesson number one introduced that, that concept and the notion that if we do not understand that, and we fail to deal with the fact that God is absolutely holy, and even after salvation, we continue to struggle with sin and become increasingly aware of the depths of our sin. If we don't face that and deal with that by the cross of Christ and have the cross fill that gap, then it will be filled in other ways. And those other ways were listed at the end of lesson one. Things like being judgmental towards others. Now, what does that have to do with my awareness of my own sin and God's holiness? Well, if I don't allow the cross to deal with that gap between God's holiness and, and my condition, then I will find myself trying to bring people down to my level, trying to make myself look, look better. So judgmentalism is one of the symptoms of failing to have the cross fill the gap that is in the gospel grid. Another one would be that we downplay our own sin. It's not that bad. So we, we fill the gap by making the gap smaller, at least in our, our own minds. Or we fill the gap by blame shifting. It's not my fault. someone else's fault. Listed a number of things at the end of lesson one that are symptoms of the problem of failing to fill the gap between our awareness of God's holiness and our awareness of our own sinfulness in, with anything other than the cross of Christ. Then you come to lesson two. And in lesson two, it, it was called, in fact, lesson two is titled, Pretending and Performing. And what the authors have done is they've summarized those ways in which we try to fill the gap with something other than the cross. They've summarized those under those two headings of pretending and performing. And so I will pretend in various ways that I am better than I am. 
or I will seek to perform before God to make myself acceptable to, to Him. And so if you'll take a look at page number 24, lesson number 3, you see at the bottom of page 24 the shrinking of the cross. And you see the gospel grid there. And you see the arrows going out and increasingly apart from each other. But then you see the cross. And the cross was large to us at the time of conversion. But the cross should become even larger to us as we move on in our Christian walk. And thus it fills this aware gap of our awareness of God's holiness and our own condition. But notice in the shrinking of the cross that it remains the same size. Because the cross was just what I needed when I got saved. It's not what I need now that I'm saved, we think, erroneously. And because of that, we seek to then fill in the gap in other ways. Performing before God to try to measure up to His holiness or pretending before others to try to minimize the truth of our, our own sin. And so that is stated then on page 24. In the last two lessons, we used a visual illustration to better understand the gospel and the way it functions in our lives. Last time we considered our propensity to shrink the cross by pretending and performing. In this session, we want to see how a strong and vibrant belief in the gospel frees us from ourselves and produces true and lasting spiritual transformation. Now, this is for today's lesson, this next line. At the root of the human condition is a struggle for these two things, righteousness and identity. So today's lesson, lesson number three, is about how the cross should provide both of those things for us, our righteousness and our identity. And if we fail to get our righteousness from the cross, or we fail to get our identity from the cross, then we will seek to find those in, in other places. We long for a sense of acceptance, approval, security, and significance because we were designed by God to find these things in Him. So we were designed by God to find these things in Him, but sin means that we don't have a relationship with, with God prior to coming to Him through Christ. And so we look for those things and every other thing in other places than where they're supposed to be found and they were designed to be found, namely in, in God. And that's why Augustine was correct when he said, we were made, speaking to, to God, we were made for thee, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And what you find in people's pursuits outside of Christ, in all sorts of ways, in all of the various forms that they, that they take, it is people chasing what they were made to find in God, seeking to find those things in other persons or things. Now, there's a word for that, and the word for that is idolatry. And so we are idolaters prior to coming to Christ. And that is what the world is engaged in, is a pursuit of idolatry, pursuing the things that are to be found in God, in other persons, and in, in other things. But then we, then we come to, to Christ. And if we are not careful, we can continue the patterns of, of the old life. 
and, and, and finding these two important matters in places other than the cross, our righteousness and our identity. So the middle of that paragraph says, sin has separated us from God, created in us a deep sense of alienation. Speaking of the Jewish people in his own day, Paul writes in Romans 10.3, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. We do the same thing. Theologically speaking, pretending and performing are two sophisticated ways of establishing our own righteousness. When we pretend, we're making ourselves out to be better than we are. When we perform, we're trying to please God by what we do. Pretending and performing reflect our sinful attempts to secure our own righteousness and identity apart from Jesus. So these are indeed real problems. The problems are that we need this righteousness, we need an accurate identity, but we seek both of those apart from, apart from Jesus. And unfortunately, many people come into the Christian life and are not taught better and often do not pursue better. How do I know this? Well, one, I've observed it, but more importantly, people smarter than me said it. That's why I have a bunch of books. And here's a book by a man, some of you know Michael Barrett. Were any of you guys taught by Michael Barrett? That, uh, anybody have Michael Barrett as a teacher? But uh, taught at a university in South Carolina. I know some of, you, some of you went there and took Bible classes there. And he taught Bible there for a number of years. He wrote this book, Complete in Him, Complete in Christ. And he says at the beginning of the book, here's the problem. Many genuine believers plod along the earthly journey on their way to eternal glory without much conscious thought of Christ. Testifying that they have been saved, these plotters tend to relegate salvation to a past decision and then struggle through life with little more than a cross-your-fingers assurance that all will be well in the end. They define Christian life in terms of rigid conservative lifestyles fueled more by guilt than by faith. On the whole, they exhibit a woeful ignorance of how to apply gospel truths. In my teaching ministry over the years, I've encountered many young people who've grown up in professedly Christian environments. They've been immersed in rules and regulations that may be good and proper, but either they've never been taught or they've never personally put forth the faith to link the code of conduct to the core truths of the gospel. Consequently, I have seen professing believers either rebelling against the Christian lifestyle because they don't know the why of it, or burdened by guilt because their performance of duty does not measure up to some perceived standard. The extremes of excessive license or oppressive bondage result. Neither of these extremes includes the joy or utilizes the power of the gospel. And that is my own observation as well, and clearly the observation of those who have written our, our study guide. They have rightly identified uh, a problem, the two major problems, within the Christian walk of many professing Christians, but thankfully they've also offered the solution. So if you look at the first full paragraph on page 25, to really experience the deep transformation God promises us in the gospel. We must continually repent of these sinful patterns. Now, the sinful patterns they're speaking of are seeking to establish our own righteousness, 
and seeking to find our identity in something or someone other than, than Christ. So we repent of these sinful patterns. Our souls must become deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel so that we anchor our righteousness and identity in Jesus and not in ourselves. Specifically, the gospel promises of, and these are the two solutions then, passive righteousness and adoption. So remember what the two problems are. Righteousness and identity. The solutions respectively then to those two things are to understand passive righteousness, we'll talk about that in a moment, and also adoption. Passive righteousness is the solution to our pursuit of false righteousness, of our own righteousness. And adoption is the answer to our pursuit of identity. Middle of page 25. Passive righteousness is the biblical truth that God has not only forgiven our sin, but also credited to us Jesus' positive righteousness. Now let me just stop there for a moment. This notion of Jesus' positive righteousness is something that I am convinced I, I know, I know from my own life and I know from my own teaching, that many Christians have not been taught and have no clue about. Jesus' positive righteousness applied to us. So what most of us understand the cross to be is the, pay, the payment for our sin. Now, if we understand that the cross pays the penalty for our sin, both past and present and future, then we are better than many others who believe the cross simply pays for what occurred in the past. Going forward, you're kind of on your own. Most of us would understand that when we were saved, when we were converted, when we came to, to God through Christ, that the payment Jesus made by His blood on the cross covered our sin, past, present, and, and future. And we, we revel in that, and well, we should. But what we don't understand is, is that by having your sin forgiven, you're simply at sort of ground zero with God. And my theology professor in, uh, in seminary, Dr. McCune, used to ask often, do you have to be good to go to heaven? And often we'd sit there and say, well, no, we know you can't be, go to heaven by your goodness. And then he would say, you actually have to be perfect to go to heaven. Well, now we got a problem. You actually have to be perfect to, to go to heaven. And he would make the point in teaching on the, the doctrine of Christ and the work of Christ that on the cross, Christ provide payment that was due us for the penalty of our, our sin. But in order to go to heaven, we must have positive righteousness before our holy God. And that positive righteousness is given to us by the absolutely righteous life of Jesus. So that when we come to Him, not only is the penalty for our sin paid by His blood on the cross, but His righteous life is applied to us as well. So that now I am not just neutral before God at ground zero, but I actually have the righteousness of Jesus as I stand before Him. And that's why Jesus paid it all is one of those great hymns of the faith. And when before the throne 
I stand in him complete. We will stand in him complete because he died our souls to save, but also he has lived the one person, only person, who has perfectly obeyed the law of God, tempted and yet without sin, and his perfect righteousness is applied to us when we come to him. So you have the cross and the penalty he paid, and you have the righteousness that he gained by his perfect life while on earth. And that's what's meant by by positive righteousness of Jesus that's credited to us. Now again, that paragraph, Romans 3, speaks of a righteousness from God that comes to us through faith. Chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now that's verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. And just quickly, if you want to have a good understanding of what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are telling us, take a look at verse 21 of, of Romans 3, quoted in your guide. And it says, but now a righteousness from God. And that phrase, if you were to have read through the first couple of chapters, would ring a bell for you. Because the theme of the book of Romans is given in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to everyone who believes. And then in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is made known. And so the, the book is about the need for a righteousness from somewhere outside of yourself. But here's the gospel, the good news, literally. There is a righteousness from outside of you. And so to show that, he now spends chapters 2 and 3 to show how, well, 1, 2, and 3, the first part of chapter 3, to show how bad it is and why we need a righteousness from outside of ourselves. And then comes to verse 21, after summarizing how ugly it is and how bad it is and how sinful we are, and therefore it is clear, if there's going to be any righteousness, it ain't coming from you. But now, verse 21, a righteousness from God that's apart from the law has been made known. Now, apart from the law. The law, the Mosaic law, by which many had come to erroneously believe we are made righteous before God by keeping the law, but no one can do that. And so in verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul says that every mouth will be stopped before the law of God. And so no one can be righteous through the law because no one can keep the law except Jesus. So it's, it's apart from the law, but I just want to make this point. That if it's apart from the law, then it is also apart from any system of works. You see, sometimes our Roman Catholics say, look, what Paul was talking about is it's no longer by the law of Moses. But now you're made righteous by, by another law. So they impose another system of works. Well, just think about the logic of that. You can't be made righteous before God by keeping the law that God gave, but you can by keeping a law we'll give you. 
Listen, nobody's going to be able to improve on the law of God. And, and there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul actually tells us in Romans 7, the law itself is good. The problem is our inability to keep it. And as a result, the law is a reminder and makes us conscious of, of sin. So, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law, and you should read there, apart from any system of works has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all, be, all who believe. Now, on this passive righteousness, they have this long and interesting quote from Martin Luther. Luther says it's called passive righteousness because we do not have to labor for it. It is not righteousness that we work for, but righteousness we receive by faith. This passive righteousness is a mystery that someone who does not know Jesus cannot understand. In fact, Christians do not completely understand it and rarely take advantage of it in their daily lives. When there is any fear or our conscience is bothered, it's a sign that our passive righteousness is out of sight and Christ is hidden. The person who wanders away from passive righteousness has no other choice but to live by works righteousness. If he does not depend on the work of Christ, he must depend on his own work. So we must teach and continually repeat the truth of this passive or Christian righteousness so that Christians continue to hold to it and never confuse it with works righteousness. So it is, it is active on the part of Jesus. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect, righteous life. But it's passive for us in that he has achieved this righteousness. And it's credited to us when we come to, to him. Luther reminds us that if we wander away from passive righteousness, he says, our hearts will naturally tend towards self or works righteousness. And to fight against our tendency to shrink the gospel in this way, we must consistently repent of false sources of righteousness and preach the gospel to ourselves, especially the truth of passive righteousness. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Yikes. So how do you, how do you know if you don't get this? How do you know if you don't understand that you are complete in Christ because of his active obedience and the passive righteousness that we then have because it's credited to us. How will you know? It is when you are judgmental and you downplay and you blame shift. When you're doing all that stuff that was talked about at the end of lesson one, that is a sure sign to you that you don't get that you are complete in Christ. Because you're trying to complete it in these other ways. Now, dear friend, I, I urge you to consider if, if those things at the end of Lesson 1 describe you as habitual patterns of life. And if that's the case, you have not appropriated the truth of what Christ has done for us, particularly in his active righteousness. We must cling to the gospel promise that God is pleased with us because he is pleased with Jesus. When we embrace the gospel in this way, seeing our sin is not scary or embarrassing. 
It actually leads to worship because Jesus has died for all of it and it's liberating because we're no longer defined by it. Our righteousness is in Christ. So that next part there that says, look, I can face the fact that I am a sinner. I can admit the fact that I'm a sinner. I don't have to keep pretending that I've got it all together. I can do that because now I know it's been paid. This is how a church can become a place where it's safe to be a sinner. You guys hear me say that. But it is only when it is populated by people who understand that our righteousness is not our own. That we can face the fact that we struggle. And we can stop pretending and acting like we're better than we are. You guys have heard me say, just stop, man. Just stop pretending, will you? I already know about you. I read a book about you and me. And it tells me the deal with us. So just give it up on the pretending like I've got it all together. But you will only do that, stop pretending, when you get what's said, what's said there. It actually leads to worship because Jesus has died for all of it. It's liberating because we're no longer defined by it. Our righteousness is in Christ. The good news of the gospel is not that God makes much of us, but that God frees us to make much of Jesus. Now, as I read that statement, it's all good but I want to point something out. And I won't finish at 10 of, but you can't, you can't have the tour till I get there at 1230. <laughs> but in the middle of that paragraph, it says, we must cling to the gospel promise that God is pleased with us because he is pleased with Jesus. And in that sentence, I just want to point out something to you that, that I have seen many times with our friends who, of late especially, there has been an emphasis upon being gospel-centered. And I think overall it's been a very helpful em- emphasis. Thus we're using the books. But you know what most of us do is we have a good emphasis and we continue to emphasize it to the exclusion of some other things if we're not careful. And in that sentence, I want you to to read that carefully. We must cling to the gospel promise that God is pleased with us because he is pleased with, with Jesus. If you read that to mean that there's never a time when God is displeased with you, then then we got it wrong. Or if you read that to mean, well, how cool is that? I've got this passive righteousness. I'm just going to lay back. I don't need to worry about sin. I don't need to actively now in my own life try to please God with my, with my life. I'm not, I don't know what our friends who wrote that mean, but I'm telling you I've heard that enough times that when I read that I go, I'm going to say something to our congregation about that. Because the gospel-centered emphasis is right and good, but we need to be careful that we don't then say, because I have now this passive righteousness seeking to actually be righteous in my experience is no longer necessary. You see, we've got to always maintain these two categories of truth. Positional truth and experiential truth. Positional truth deals with, as the name suggests, our position before God because of Christ. 
And so this is telling us that our position before God because of the active obedience of Jesus and thus the passive righteousness that we have is that we have all the, of Jesus' perfect life applied to us. That's our position. But now he's left you here to live and experience the Christian life. And increasingly, our experience should match our position. We should actually be becoming more righteous. We should actually be seeking to and actually doing, pleasing God in our lives. Now, how do I know this? Colossians chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says. Colossians 1, verse 10. Now, I'll start in verse 9. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. If anyone says or implies in their zeal for being gospel-centered, that God is never more pleased with you than he will, will never be any more pleased with you than he is at this moment, then they don't get that. We make it our goal to please him. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? Please God. And the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is about people who by faith pleased God with their lives. And so it is good to point out the failure to connect, as our gospel-centered friends do and as I consider myself to be, the disconnect that often happens between, forgive the big terms, but here they are, in the indicative and the imperative. And here's what that means. That in your New Testament, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, that the letters of Paul are written with a fairly consistent pattern that the beginning of those letters start with who we are in Christ. The, and they are written, actually, in Greek. I'm saying this for Dr. Combs' sake. They're actually written in Greek in, in, a, in a mood that is called the indicative. And it gives, it gives who we are because of Christ. But then he'll translate, transition then because of, of who we are in Christ to the imperative. Now, because of that, here's what you must do. This is how you must live. So it is good and right to point out the disconnect that is often made between those. Sometimes those of us that are concerned rightly about Christian living go directly to the imperative, and we say, be good, be more, be better, and we give you all these imperatives without connecting those to our identity in Christ. So it is good to point that out. It is good to see that we are accepted by God in Christ. Notice my word, accepted by God in Christ. And if someone were to say, you will not be more accepted by God than you are today, I would agree with that. But used, language matters, words matter. Accepted by God in Christ but in our experience seeking to please God because of our acceptance. It is good to see that union with Christ 
Romans 6, that we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection, that it's the basis for victory over the power of sin, says Romans 6. But it is not good to make passive righteousness eliminate the pursuit of righteousness in our lives. And unfortunately, that's what's happening for for many people. Now, the gospel-centered life material, we'll talk about some of that later, thankfully. But in this sentence, they've used this unfortunate common wording of pleasing instead of accepting. Now, hear this. We cannot sever the link between, as I said, the indicative and the imperative. We cannot sever the link between justification before God, just as if I'd never sinned. That's my position. And sanctification, which is my experience. We cannot sever the link between our union with Christ and the breaking of the power of sin in our everyday lives now. We cannot sever those. Now, if I loved you and I spent the time and I wasn't in Manila last week, I would have a slide on the screen to show this to you. But if you just had two columns with those three things in each, on the left, indicative, on the right, imperative, on the left, justification, on the right, sanctification, on the left, union with Christ, on the right, the power of sin is broken. If you just had those two columns, here's what happens. Legalists fail to focus sufficiently on the left column. But libertines fail to focus sufficiently on the right column. But Christians, (laughs) and those of us who want to be obedient to all that Scripture teaches, want to apply both of those to our lives. And so look at the middle of page 26, or the first full paragraph. Adoption, then. Now, this will deal with our identity. Is the biblical truth. God has welcomed us into His family as his own sons and daughters, by virtue of our union with Jesus. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to confirm this adoption within us. Romans 8, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Galatians 4, 7 says the same thing in different, different words. Now, all of us, this is now trying to address this issue of identity by reminding us of what the Bible says about adoption. And I just remind you of this. All of us live our lives out of some sense of identity. And what we are being told here, and rightly, because the Scripture teaches it, is we must live our lives out of our true identity as sons and daughters of God, children of God, adopted into his family. Now, how do I know that all of us live our lives with some sense of identity? You've heard me say before that, you know, people who have struggled with drink in the past, alcoholics, what does AA tell you to, to say? I am an alcoholic and what? I will always be an alcoholic. Now, it doesn't mean I'll always drink the way I did, and, or, or that I'll always drink at all, but I'll always be an alcoholic. And, and if you talk to somebody who has engaged in that, in that mighty struggle, and you, and, and you meet them, one of the first things they'll tell you is, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Or if you meet somebody who has gone through the, the trauma of divorce, 
Very often, this is so prominent in their lives. One of the first things they'll tell you when they meet is, is I'm a divorcee. When we meet people, many of us, we will say, we'll exchange names, and then we'll say, what do you do? Because for many people, their identity is bound up in, in what they do, in their occupation. So we find our identities and live out of a sense of identity. It may be some circumstantial struggle that we've had. It may be our occupation. But hear this, friends. You, if you've come to Christ, you are not defined by alcohol. You're not defined by your marital status. You're not defined by your occupation. You are defined first and foremost and need to live your life in the light of the fact that you have been adopted into God's family and you are a son or daughter of God. Now, listen. Look in then at your circumstances and all the stuff and all the struggle that Dr. Combs talked about and the struggle with sin in the first hour. Looking at all of that now as a son or daughter of God makes all the difference. I am not an orphan out there trying to feel my way through life. And that's exactly what the material goes on to say. If you'll take a look at page 29. There's a chart on page 29 that is a self-assessment that I encourage you to take a look at this week. It's got two columns, the orphan and the son or daughter. And it goes down through this list, and I want, I, I want you to go through the list and ask yourself, do I live out of a sense of identity that is like an orphan or one that says I'm a child of God, a son or daughter of God? All right. Now, in order to maintain my own righteousness, I must get done before noon. I have finished two minutes before noon. I can't tell you how superior I feel. Let's pray. It will be a 30-second prayer. (laughs) Let's pray.